But thank you for being here this morning as we continue our study of Genesis. We're, as you've already heard, we're in chapter 24. <clears throat> and the title of the sermon this morning is Godly Parenting. Which maybe after hearing that chapter, you're like, really? That's the title of the sermon? <laughs> yeah, it is. You'll see why. Has anybody ever seen bad examples of parenting? Yeah. How many parents out there would say, hey, I've had a few failures myself? Yep, all of us. You better have your hands up. If you're a parent. Uh, and, uh, and if you're a child, then you've seen bad examples. Because we've all done it. So I thought it might be good this morning just to start with a few lighthearted examples of parenting failures. Because it happens to all of us, whether it's at the beach. I don't know if you can, if you can see this picture up close, you can see the fear in that mother's face because she's about to drop her child, (laughs) or whether it's at the store with this little boy who saw a toilet and thought, well, I need to go, or whether it's at school, this uh, child was told to draw a picture of what their parents do best, and so they draw a picture, and then the the words say, my mom likes to sit on the couch and text people. I don't know who wrote the words. It's obviously not the same person that drew the picture. (laughs) I liked this one uh, because it has a story behind it. This little girl, so the the parent was driving. They had the windows down, and the parent was uh, spitting sunflower seeds out the window, which happened to find their way back into the car and all over their child. You know, I know it seems like families are getting more and more dysfunctional right now and parents are failing. And Well, it doesn't just seem that way. I mean, that is, in general, pretty true. There is a sad downward trend happening right now. But, the, you know, the Bible is actually full of dysfunctional families and, and bad parenting, too. So, it is nothing new. We can at least say that. In fact, it's harder to find good examples of parents in Scripture than bad ones. But thankfully... We haven't been given any reason to view Abraham as a bad father. In fact, in today's passage, we see something that he did for his son Isaac that I believe we can extract some godly parenting principles from. But this sermon, it is, it is kind of a sandwich of a sermon. You know, uh, we are going to look at three truths about godly parents, but those are sandwiched in between a couple of truths in this passage that we can see about how God works his plans out in the world. And before we, uh, we get started, I want to pray, God, thank you for bringing us together. Thank you for this passage of scripture. Thank you for Abraham and uh, just the stories that you have saved for us, Lord, your holy history in the word of God that we have to learn from, that we can put our faith in, that never changes. What an amazing thing the word of God is. And we pray this morning that you would help us to glean from it in a way that, that we can leave here better prepared as parents and also as followers of Christ. We thank you and pray these things in his holy name. Amen. So I'm going to start in verses 1 through 4, which said, Abraham was now old, getting on in years, and the Lord had blessed him in everything. Abraham said to his servant, the elder of his household, who managed all he owned, Place your hand under my thigh, and I will have you swear by the Lord, God of heaven and God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live, but will go to my land and my family to take a wife 
for my son Isaac. So Abraham knew that God had promised to make his descendants like the sand on the seashore. And he knew specifically that that promise was going to come through Isaac. But he also understood basic biology too, right? Man does not make baby alone. Man makes baby with woman. Isaac no have woman. Isaac no have babies. So he decided, well, I'm going to get involved in getting Isaac a woman so that Isaac can have babies. And Abraham getting involved at all is interesting because you, you have to think, well, he could have just left it to the Lord, right? He knew the promise, so why inject yourself into the situation at all? Why not just say, just let God take care of it how he wants to? But it's this story that shows us that this was the way that God intended to take care of it. God decided to bless Abraham's care for his son and his efforts to help his son. So the idea that we should just not involve ourselves in God's plans because he will carry them out anyway is a sore misunderstanding of the way that God chooses to work in this world. God's providence and sovereignty are evident throughout this story. But we see as well that God works his plans through his people. And I know that what I'm about to say isn't a prevalent idea here or even in most churches, but there are professing believers who would say, well, I don't need to evangelize because God will choose and call whomever he will choose and call, and my involvement in that isn't going to help him do it or keep him from doing it. Well, so they'll say things like, well, only God makes disciples. And it's like, hey, we understand only God can ultimately save someone's soul, but we also have to deal with Jesus' command to all of his followers, go and make disciples. And, and the point carries beyond evangelism too, because it's easy to get caught being stagnant right? and, and, and of little use to God's kingdom because we sit around thinking, well, God's got it. He's going to take care of it. You know, I've often taught about these biblical tensions that we have to deal with, and this is one of them, right? Because we fall too far in one direction if we look at the world like, hey, the world is on my shoulders, and if I don't get involved, then God's will will not be accomplished. Well, see, under that mentality, you threaten to put yourself on the throne of the world instead of leaving God in his due position. But we also swing too far in the other direction when we think, well, I don't need to do anything because he's on the throne. And that's not true either. So how do we balance this tension? We listen to the Lord. And that's what Abraham was doing. Now, we don't see here God giving Abraham a direct command about this situation. But Abraham had a relationship with God. He understood God's promise. He knew God's character. And he acted on his faith in God's promises and his character. And that's what we have to do as well. So if you want to be involved in God's work in this world, you have, to li- you have to get to know the Lord. And if you don't do that, you won't be able to listen to him. And you get to know God by using the three resources that I always talk about. I've said over and over and over and over, those things that God has given us that we have to use. And that is the word of God and the spirit of God and the people of God. The Bible, the Holy Spirit, and the church. And how do each of those help us? Well, by reading scripture, we come to know all the commands that we've been given. And a command speaks for itself. Our role is not to question it. We don't argue with God about it. We're not supposed, we shouldn't. It doesn't help us any anyway. 
And we don't ignore it. We just simply obey. And so something like evangelism gets taken care of because God commands us to go and make disciples, to take the word all over the world. And so there you have your answer. It's simple. And from like a parental perspective, if we think to ourselves, well, should I discipline my child or should I just leave him in God's hands? Let him take care of it. Well, scripture commands us to discipline our children, to raise them up in the ways of God. So it's pretty easy to find the answer to that. Case closed, easy breezy. Accomplishing the task isn't so easy, (laughs) but at least we know the task that we must work toward. And then we have the things that are not commanded in scripture, right? We don't get direct commands about everything that happens in life from the word of God. But also in the Bible, we get principles that we must use. And God has given us the Holy Spirit. And so through reading God's word and knowing the principles that he's given us and through listening and prayer and sensitivity to the Holy Spirit, we will often find ourselves convicted in the right direction. If you are truly seeking the Lord, you'll find he really wants to direct you. Psalm, or Proverbs, I mean, 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. I mean, how many of us, we could testify to the fact that we we were dealing with something and we didn't have a, a command one way or the other, but we just knew where God was leading us. He made our path straight because we knew the Lord and we were listening to him. But then we have the church, and the church helps us in many ways, because sometimes we think that we don't have a command in Scripture. And then our brothers and sisters in Christ can come along and say, oh, actually, you do. It's over here. Let me show it to you. (laughs) And so they can help us with that. But then even in those things where we don't have a command, they can come along and they can lend their wisdom and their insight and their prayers, and they can help guide us in the right direction. They can help us listen to the Holy Spirit, because discerning the guidance of the Holy Spirit is not always easy. Sometimes we end up listening to our unholy spirit instead. But our brothers and sisters in Christ can step in and assist us. So I'm mentioning this all to to say, and because what I see with Abraham is that he didn't just sit on his faith. He didn't just sit back and be like, well, I'm going to die one day. I'm just going to leave everything to the Lord. It's whatever. He's going to take care of it. He had faith and he acted on his faith. He understood that God uses his people to accomplish his plans, and we should too. But now I want to go into a few things that I think we can learn from Abraham's parenting. I believe in those first four verses, we also see that a godly parent prepares. Abraham was preparing Isaac for the road ahead, and he understood that he needed a wife for that road. So he saw the needs of his son, especially after his mother's death. Isaac and Sarah obviously had a very close relationship. And up to this point, I mean, Isaac wasn't married yet. And we know that he was at the very minimum 37 years old by now. But he was likely already older than that. And he hadn't been married. But now his mother was gone. And his father recognized, well, you need, you need some comfort, you need companionship, and you need to move on with your life and the plans that God has said he has for your life. And so Abraham wanted to help his son, much like David. 
Right? If you're familiar with that story, when David decided to prepare the way for Solomon to be able to build the temple, God told David, hey, David really wanted to build the temple, but God was like, no, you're not going to do it. That's going to be your son's thing. And so David didn't just sit around and do nothing. He prepared everything that would be needed. He was like, I know I can't build it, but I'm going to get everything ready for you, son, so you can accomplish God's plans. He, and Abraham knew he wasn't going to be the one to continue on, to keep building this family, to, to see the promises of God fulfilled, but he was going to get everything ready for his son. And so my conclusion from that this morning is that all of us parents, we need to start arranging our kids' marriages. <laughs> it's got it's to be the best way forward, right? <laughs> No, probably not. That's probably not the way that we're going to prepare our kids for their road to follow the Lord. Although I'm sure many of us wish that we could. (laughs) But we still must prepare our kids. We have to. And that, I mean, you could go on, you could write, I mean, there's books about how you prepare your kids for success. But we, we, we do it by being an example of godliness, right? You want to walk the road that you want them to follow on, the kind of imitate me as I imitate Christ idea. For success, we prepare them by showing them mothers and fathers who love one another and who stay committed and faithful through the ups and downs of life as we learned about how Abraham and Sarah had done. We, in, we, we raise them up in the ways of the Lord, right? Ingraining in them that God is the most important thing in life that he is good, that he is loving, that he is sovereign, and so many other things. We inject the gospel into all aspects of their lives and intentionally take ownership of their discipleship as their parents, not leaving that job to, to others. We teach them God's word. What does it say? But not only what does it say, but why does it say it? Not just about rules, But why? What's the purpose of the rules? What's the meaning behind it? What's the design that God has put in this world? But we don't don't only teach them about the word of God, but also about the world that we live in and prepare them for what's ahead in their lives. I could go on for hours. Parents must prepare their children. But there's more. There's in verse five through eight, we see the servant said to him, suppose the woman is unwilling to follow me to this land. Should I have your son go back to the land you came from? Abraham answered him, make sure that you don't take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from my native land, who spoke to me and swore to me, I will give this land to your offspring. He will send his angel before you and you can take a wife for my son from there. If the woman is unwilling to follow you, then you are free from this oath to me, but don't let my son go back there. So this revealed that Abraham wanted, he didn't want Isaac to leave Canaan, but he also didn't want Isaac's wife to come from Canaan, which could make it a little hard for Isaac because I'm pretty sure he didn't have a Hebrew mingle app on his phone. And so why? Well, most likely, Abraham didn't want Isaac to leave Canaan because he didn't want him to face the temptation to not come back because they were living in the land that God had promised to give them. As for why he wanted his wife to come from back home, well, that could have had to do with the family lineage or also with the family religion or both. 
Now, we, I believe that we see faith in Rebecca and her family in this story. But we also know from later stories that her brother Laban was actually a polytheist. So he wasn't much of a, of a God worshiper, really. And there isn't anything you know, explicitly mentioned about what Isaac's potential wife has to believe. There's nothing there. But we also know later on that God did, he would go on to forbid the Israelites from intermarrying with the Canaanites because doing so was a threat to their worship of the Lord. So the non-Israelite spouses would often bring God's chosen people into paganism and idol worship and all kinds of things. It's kind of like the Old Testament equivalent of what we're taught in the New Testament that believers should not be yoked to unbelievers. Those relationships, the light and the dark, they don't mix. And so I believe that these two aspects of Abraham's wish for Isaac show that he was protecting Isaac because a godly parent protects Yeah, there would come a time when Abraham would be gone and Isaac would be making all his decisions on his own. But that time had not yet come. Even in Abraham's old age, he's like, I'm still your dad. I'm still alive and I'm going to protect you. And so Abraham used his father, fatherly position to protect his child as all parents should. But even here, there's another tension that we have to deal with, right? Because there are boundaries. There are limits when it comes to protecting our children that we have the tension that we have to deal with. So we homeschool our children right now because we have zero desire for them to be in the public schools in this city. And that is a way that we protect our children from the many ungodly influences that they are not yet ready to face. But we also don't want to fall into an extreme where we protect them, but we don't prepare them. So we don't put bags over our kids' heads every time we drive around the city. Every time, it's not like, get in the van, all right, here's your bag. All right, cover your head. Might not be a bad idea, but we don't do that, all right? Although they are trained, there are certain places that we drive by, certain businesses that are not family-friendly, and they are trained to look away, and they know where they are, and so it's funny, we'll be driving, and we'll be getting close to one, especially that we drive by more often, and uh, you'll hear one of the kids in the back say, oh, look away! And they'll look the opposite direction. <clears throat> but we don't put bags over their heads everywhere we go. We don't keep them from being out in public, from getting to know other people. We don't put padding all over them every time they're ready to play. We protect them from things that they're not ready for while simultaneously preparing them for those very things because they will have to face them. So we protect our children from being indoctrinated by an ungodly culture, but we also prepare them by addressing those same issues that we're protecting them from, but from a godly perspective, a biblical worldview. Therefore, hopefully when they're older and they do face what the world offers, they won't have to be naive or surprised by what they see. Instead, they can be like, yeah, mom and dad taught us about that. And maybe, maybe one day they'll, be, they'll see those efforts. They'll recognize it and be grateful. Maybe they'll say, who knows, maybe one day in the future, thank you, mom and dad, for not letting me watch too much TV. <laughs> 
Thank you for not giving me internet access. Thank you for not giving me a smartphone. Thank you for investing in my education. Thank you for making me go to church. For making God the most important thing. I don't know. Hopefully one day. Until then, though, until we might have to endure some ungrateful attitudes, right? And some not as thankful words. But it's worth it. And parents, it's it's your responsibility to protect your children, not just with restraints in the car, but restraints in the culture. Abraham saw the dangers that Isaac could get into and chose to protect them from those dangers. That's what a good parent does. But it needs to go along with preparation. It has to. Because some parents think the walls will be enough. Right? So they'll protect their children ferociously. They'll put up all kinds of walls to protect them from everything outside in the world. But the problem is when they don't prepare them. So picture this. Let's say that zombies take over the world. All right? And, and you find a safe haven and you build up strong walls all around it. And so you've got this nice little safe space, this little community. And the people in this community, oh man, they're happy. They live their lives. They go about their business just as normal. They, they work, they go to school, they eat, they play, they sleep. But they don't train. Okay? They don't learn about the outside. They don't understand the dangers. So they're not being equipped to kill the zombies, to forage, to live off the land, to cover their tracks, to walk quietly, to avoid other dangers out there in the world. And then the wall gets breached, and what's going to happen? A bunch of people are going to die because they weren't prepared for that. Well, that's the scenario that we set up for our kids when we protect without preparing. Eventually, those walls will come down. Or they will choose to go outside of those walls. And if they're not prepared, if they're not ready, it won't look good. So to create a safe haven for children, we shouldn't picture a a city surrounded by walls with zombies outside of it where the inhabitants go about their day like nothing's the matter. We picture a city surrounded by walls and zombies where everybody inside is constantly training and preparing for war. And that's what we have to do in our own homes with our, with our kids. It's a safe place, but it's a safe place where we're preparing them for war. The spiritual war that they will have to jump into independently one day. But what if we prepare, okay, but we don't protect? Well, that doesn't work out so great either. See, in that situation, we picture our kids, yeah, training in combat, learning about survival, preparing for war. But instead of being in a safe environment, surrounded by walls for that, they're surrounded by zombies. All right? And it's not super efficient to prepare our children for war while they're in the middle of combat. You wouldn't want to be on the beaches of Normandy teaching your men how to shoot a gun. That's not the best time for that. It doesn't work out too well. And that's the scenario we set up for our kids if we prepare without protecting. You'll be so busy with the battle that you can't focus on preparation and you can't keep them safe because the dangers are too much. So if you don't prepare or protect, your child will most likely be a product of the world. The world will be their home. 
not your home. And if you protect without preparing, your child will most likely be naive and overwhelmed when they leave home. And if you prepare without protecting, your child will most likely be scarred and traumatized by the world before they leave home. I believe those are biblical, godly truths. Not easy, though. And there's a third thing here that I think we can see a godly parent does, but we have to jump all the way to the end. In verse 67, Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother, Sarah, and took Rebekah to be his wife. Isaac loved her, and he was comforted after his mother's death. Abraham came through. You know, the work that he did to prepare and protect, he came through. He saw his child's needs. He prepared the way for those needs to be met. He protected them, him from the dangers that could get in the way of meeting those needs. And then he provided for those needs because a godly parent provides. Godly parenting, it doesn't just intend or plan to provide. It comes through. Of course, provision can include all kinds of things. In in this story, it happened to be a wife. In ours, it probably won't be that way. But it would be other things, food, clothing, shelter, education, love, discipleship, a godly example, a healthy church home. Just a few. You know the phrase, it's the thought that counts. Well, when it comes to providing for our kids, the thought doesn't count. You know, a godly parent doesn't, intend to love their child. They love their child. They don't plan to disciple them. They disciple them. They don't desire to care for them. They care. And this is where we can see a connection from my first point to this one. Like I said, this sermon is a sandwich, but it's a sandwich with ingredients that go well together. And so as parents, when it comes to raising our kids, we don't just say, "Ah, God's got it. He's going to take care of it. I mean, we do have to do that. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, we have to be able to sit back and rest in God's sovereignty. But we do that along with giving it our best. Not with being lazy about it. And unfortunately, parenting is not baking. There's not a magic recipe that if we just follow it every time, we're going to produce the perfect child. It doesn't work that way. And and instead, it's more like cooking where you're given a list of ingredients and, well, and nothing else. That's it. Like just, just a list of ingredients, no amounts, no directions, no anything. It's just a list of, so, you know, like to, to raise my child in a godly way, of course, we're never guaranteed that we're going to raise a godly child, but we have to work to being a godly parent. So to raise my child in a godly way, I know I'm supposed to use this and this and this and this but I don't know how much of each to use or or when I'm supposed to put them in or what order they're supposed to go in. And so we work that out with with the word of God, the spirit of God, and the people of God. And then at the end of the day, we just keep using those ingredients, praying for God's help, and resting in his goodness. But think about it this way. If you have a recipe, it's easy. I mean, for some of us, it doesn't matter if we have a recipe or not. Cooking is going to be hard. But it's easier, right? It doesn't take as much effort. 
So, you know, all right, add this much, add this ingredient and this much of this ingredient at this time. All right, set the heat on four, let it simmer for 20 minutes, et cetera. You know, you can just kind of follow those directions. But cooking with just a list of ingredients, man, you got to keep your head over the stove all the time. You're, you're constantly tasting, smelling, tinkering with everything, right? And it takes a lot of love and attention to make that meal good. And it takes a lot of love and attention to raise up a child in the way they should go. But it's a worthy effort. It's necessary. Now here's the other slice of bread in this sermon sandwich. The beginning was about the necessity to actually act, live out our faith, not just sit on it. The middle was godly parenting. In the end, I want to point out the way that God chose to work out his providential plan in this story. I don't know if you noticed, but there was a lot of faith throughout that chapter. All right, Abraham had faith. In God, his servant had some astounding faith all throughout. He was a man of prayer and worship. And it's cool how the story was told like, hey, Rebecca showed up immediately as he was finished praying. Verse 45, before I had finished praying silently, there was Rebecca coming with her jug on her shoulder and she went down to the spring and drew water. It's like she had left the house before he ever even started praying, right? Can remind us of Isaiah 65, before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. That's the kind of God we serve, the one who has that kind of knowledge, that kind of power, who's working out his plans that way. Rebecca and her family showed faith. I love verse 50. Laban and Bethuel answered, this is from the Lord. We have no choice in the matter. If only we could all respond that way all the time, right? And I think we see faith in Isaac here too. So all throughout this story, God was working out his plans through these people's faith for Rebekah to become the next matriarch of Israel. But if you notice, it was all very kind of ordinary, mundane things that were happening. Nothing that we would label miraculous. Kent Hughes put it this way, there will be no miracle in this story as we usually think of miracles. No rearrangement of molecules, no sun standing still, no healing, no river stopped up. Rather, God will bring about the acquiring of Isaac's bride through the normal events of life, the delays, the customs, the stresses, the chance meetings. As J.I. Packer says, believers are never in the grip of blind forces, fortune, chance, luck, faith. All that happens to them is divinely planned, and each event comes as a new summons to trust, obey, and rejoice. When we think about God working together his plans for our world, sometimes our imaginations get caught up in the extraordinary and we forget that God works his plans through his people by ordinary means. God, he is a miracle worker. He can, anytime he wants, step outside of the natural order and do as he pleases. But most of the time he is working according to the natural order of life. Hughes continued by saying, such a God, of course, is great beyond our imaginings because he maintains all of life, involves himself in all events and directs all things to their appointed end while rarely interrupting the natural order of life. This is an awesome thought. The God of scripture is not simply a God of miracles who occasionally injects his power into life. He's far greater 
Because he arranges all of life to suit and affect his providence. This makes all of life a miracle. God is over all. He is all powerful, all knowing, all present, all controlling. This is the God of scripture. Anything less is an idolatrous reduction of our puny imaginations. So if we walk around always looking for the unusual, the miraculous, then we will fail to recognize God working in our lives. And I know it seems backwards to think that God working in the normal, ordinary ways of life is actually is minimizing him. But it's true because to label him as simply an extraordinary miracle worker will put him in a position where we only see him working when we see the extraordinary. And that means that he's not intimately involved in our lives every day. And he is. He is. He's always there. He's always working. And again, as parents, it's important to always be there, always working as best we can in our children's lives. Now, we are not God to our children. We can't do that. We can't be that for them. But we are the authorities that he has given in their lives. We are, like, it's amazing when you think about the task that's been given, like, a human life has been placed in parents' hands and not just a life, but a soul, right? And the way that we care for them doesn't, it doesn't completely determine who they will become. But apart from God, we probably have the most influence on who they become. And so let us remember that God wants to use us as we prepare, protect, and provide for our kids in a way that reflects how he prepares, protects, and provides for us. Again, I know that it's hard. And there's no guarantees. But we have to try to give it our best. Do as best we can. And constantly lean on the Lord. Constantly go to him in prayer. Constantly seek the commands and the principles of scripture. Constantly seek the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. And of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And then at the end of the day, we have to learn to rest. Just as with anything else in life, right? Because scripture teaches us, worrying is not from the Lord. And if there's a source of worry in this world, then I'm sure parents with their kids is a pretty big one. It's easy to worry. But we have to cast all of our anxieties on him, cast all of our cares on him. And in everything, by prayer and petition, let our requests be made known to God. And I would encourage anyone in here as a parent to remember that the way God built his church is that we would be in it together. And so you're really hurting yourself if you're trying to do it alone, apart from the people of God. Let's pray. 
God, thank you for bringing us together this morning. Thank you so much for this passage. Thank you for the examples that we've been given in Scripture, the good and the bad, because we can learn from both. Thank you for the principles that you've given us in Scripture and the commands. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. It's hard to imagine, but as Jesus said, it is better for us that the Holy Spirit is here than if he would have just stayed himself. But he sends a helper that could be with us at all times, that lives in us as believers. And thank you for the church. Lord, I'm so glad. I understand that as a parent, I have to be the best example, the most influential example of the Lord in their lives, but I'm so glad when I can surround them with other examples. And they can feel like following the Lord is, it's so wonderful. It's good. It's joyful. And while, yes, we are the minority in this world, the, those who choose to walk the narrow path, the narrow and difficult road instead of the easy, wide road, Lord, we're not alone on that road. And I pray that you would give us strength, give us wisdom. God, help us to to remember how to prepare, how to protect, and how to provide. And we pray for our kids. God, we lift up our children. And there are parents in here that have kids who are already grown. There are parents in here who have kids that are young and still dependent on them. And there are parents in here that aren't parents yet, but that will be one day. And some of our children are believers and some are not. God, we pray for those who have children who are not believers, Lord, who are not following the ways of the Lord. We pray for them, God, that you would pursue them, that you would just convict their heart, that you would help them to see the lies, to help them to discern the schemes of Satan in their lives and turn away and repent and put their faith in you. And for those who have children who are believers, God, we pray that they would be strong, that their roots would be deep, that they would have a strong community, that they would grow in their sanctification, that they would be disciples who make disciples, that the focus of their life would be God and that he would be number one. And for those of us that have children who maybe haven't made that decision yet, maybe they're young and they're not believers yet, but they also haven't gone on to to walk away from the Lord. We pray that the seeds of the gospel would fall on fertile soil in their hearts and that they would make that choice whenever they're able to understand and that they would start strong and just grow from there, Lord, and 
everybody walks a different path. Everybody has different ups and downs and different seasons. But we pray for all of our children. We lift them up into your hands, to your goodness, your loving kindness. And help us to do everything that you've called us to do, but also not to try to do the things that we can't do, that we have to hand over to you. But also help us not to put on you the things that you have told us is our own responsibility. Help us to understand those tensions that we talked about today and to not fall too far in either direction. And we pray all these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.